Chapter 20 The purpose of having the sun go low in the evenings in the summer, especially in parks, said the voice earnestly, is to make girls' breasts bob up and down more clearly to the eye. I'm convinced that this is the case. Arthur and Fenchurch giggled about this to each other as they passed. She hugged him more tightly for a moment. And I am certain, said the frizzy, ginger-haired youth with the long, thin nose who was expostulating from his deck chair by the side of the serpentine, that if one worked the argument through, one would find that it flowed with perfect naturalness and logic from everything, he insisted to his thin, dark-haired companion who was slumped in the next-door deck chair, feeling dejected about his spots, that Darwin was going on about. This is certain. This is indisputable. And, he added, I love it. He turned sharply and squinted through his spectacles at Fenchurch. Next guess, she said when she had stopped giggling. Come on. All right, he said. Your elbow. Your left elbow. There's something wrong with your left elbow. Wrong again, she said. Completely wrong. You're on completely the wrong track. The summer sun was sinking through the trees in the park, looking as if... Let's not mince words... Hyde Park is stunning. Everything about it is stunning except for the rubbish on Monday mornings. Even the ducks are stunning. Anyone who can go through Hyde Park on a summer's evening and not feel moved by it is probably going through in an ambulance with the sheet pulled over their face. It is a park in which people do more extraordinary things than they do elsewhere. Arthur and Fenchurch found a man in shorts practising the bagpipes to himself under a tree. The piper paused to chase off an American couple who had tried, timidly, to put some coins on the box his bagpipes came in. No! he shouted at them. Go away! I'm only practising! He started resolutely to reinflate his bag, but even the noise this made could not disfigure their mood. Arthur put his arms around her and moved them slowly downwards. I don't think it can be your bottom, he said after a while. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that at all. Yes, she agreed. There's absolutely nothing wrong with my bottom. They kissed for so long that eventually the piper went and practised on the other side of the tree. I'll tell you a story, said Arthur. Good. They found a patch of grass which was relatively free of couples actually lying on top of each other and sat and watched the stunning ducks and the low sunlight rippling on the water which ran beneath the stunning ducks. A story, said Fenchurch, cuddling his arm to her. Which will tell something of the sort of things that happened to me. It's absolutely true. True story. You know sometimes people tell you stories that are supposed to be something that happened to their wife's cousin's best friend, but actually probably got made up somewhere along the line. Well, it's like one of those stories, except that it actually happened, and I know it actually happened because the person it actually happened to was me. Like the raffle ticket. Arthur laughed. Yes, I had a train to catch, he went on. I arrived at the station. Did I ever tell you, interrupted Fenchurch, what happened to my parents in a station? Yes, said Arthur. You did. Just checking. Arthur glanced at his watch. I suppose we could think of getting back, he said. Tell me the story, said Fenchurch firmly. You arrived at the station. I was about twenty minutes early. I'd got the time of the train wrong. I suppose it is 
at least equally possible, he added after a moment's reflection, that British Rail had got the time of the train wrong hadn't occurred to me before. Get on with it, Fenchurch laughed. So, I bought a newspaper to do the crossword and went to the buffet to get a cup of coffee. You do the crossword? Yes. Which one? The Guardian, usually. I think it tries to be too cute. I prefer the Times. Did you solve it? What? The crossword in the Guardian. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, said Arthur. I'm still trying to buy the coffee. All right, then, buy the coffee. I'm buying it. I am also, said Arthur, buying some biscuits. What sort? Rich tea. Good choice. I like them. Now, laden with all these new possessions, I go and sit at a table. And don't ask me what the table was like, because this was some time ago and I can't remember. It was probably round. All right. So, let me give you the layout. Me sitting at the table, on my left, the newspaper, on my right, the cup of coffee, in the middle of the table, the packet of biscuits. I see it perfectly. What you don't see, said Arthur, because I haven't mentioned him yet, is the guy sitting at the table already. He is sitting there opposite me. What's he like? Perfectly ordinary. Briefcase, business suit. He didn't look, said Arthur, as if he was about to do anything weird. Ah, I know the type. What did he do? He did this. He leaned across the table, picked up the packet of biscuits, tore it open, took one out, and... What? Ate it. What? He ate it. Fenchurch looked at him in astonishment. What on earth did you do? Well, in the circumstances, I did what any red-blooded Englishman would do. I was compelled, said Arthur, to ignore it. What? Why? Well, it's not the sort of thing you're trained for, is it? I searched my soul and discovered that there was nothing anywhere in my upbringing, experience or even primal instincts to tell me how to react to someone who has, quite simply, calmly, sitting right there in front of me, stolen one of my biscuits. Well, you could... Fenchurch thought about it. I must say... I'm not sure what I would have done either. So what happened? I stared furiously at the crossword, said Arthur. Couldn't do a single clue. Took a sip of coffee. It was too hot to drink, so there was nothing for it. I braced myself. I took a biscuit, trying very hard not to notice, he added, that the packet was already mysteriously open. But you're fighting back, taking a tough line. After my fashion, yes. I ate the biscuit. I ate it very deliberately and visibly, so that he would have no doubt as to what it was I was doing. When I eat a biscuit, Arthur said, it stays eaten. So what did he do? Took another one. Honestly, insisted Arthur, this is exactly what happened. He took another biscuit, he ate it, clear as daylight, certain as we are sitting on the ground. Fenchurch stirred uncomfortably. And the problem was, said Arthur, that having not said anything the first time, it was somehow even more difficult to broach the subject the second time around. What do you say? Excuse me, I couldn't help noticing, uh, doesn't work. No, I ignored it with, if anything, even more vigour than previously. My man, stared at the crossword again, still couldn't budge a bit of it, so, showing some of the spirit that Henry V did on St Crispin's Day, what? I went into the breach again. I took, said Arthur, another biscuit, and for an instant, 
our eyes met. Like this? Yes, well, no, not quite like that, but they met just for an instant, and we both looked away. But I am here to tell you, said Arthur, that there was a little electricity in the air. There was a little tension building up over the table at about this time. I can imagine. We went through the whole packet like this. Him, me, him, me, the whole packet. Well, it was only eight biscuits, but it seemed like a lifetime of biscuits we were getting through at this point. Gladiators could hardly have had a tougher time. Gladiators, said Fenchurch, would have had to do it in the sun. More physically gruelling. There is that. So, when the empty packet was lying dead between us, the man at last got up, having done his worst, and left. I heaved a sigh of relief, of course. As it happened, my train was announced a moment or two later, so I finished my coffee, stood up, picked up the newspaper, and underneath the newspaper... Yes? ...were my biscuits. What? said Fenchurch. What? True. No! She gasped and tossed herself back on the grass, laughing. She sat up again. You complete nitwit, she hooted. You almost completely and utterly foolish person. She pushed him backwards, rolled over him, kissed him and rolled off again. He was surprised at how light she was. Now you tell me a story. I thought, she said, putting on a low husky voice, that you were very keen to get back. No hurry, he said airily. I want you to tell me a story. She looked out over the lake and pondered. All right, she said. It's only a short one, and not funny like yours, but anyway. She looked down. Arthur could feel that it was one of those sorts of moments. The air seemed to stand still around them, waiting. Arthur wished that the air would go away and mind its own business. When I was a kid, she said, these sort of stories always start like this, don't they, when I was a kid. Anyway, this is the bit where the girl suddenly says, when I was a kid, and starts to unburden herself. We have got to that bit. When I was a kid, I had this picture hanging over the foot of my bed. What do you think of it so far? I like it. I think it's moving well. You're getting the bedroom interest in nice and early. We could probably do with some development with the picture. It was one of those pictures that children are supposed to like, she said, but don't. Full of endearing little animals doing endearing things, you know? I know, I was plagued with them too. Rabbits in waistcoats. Exactly. These rabbits were in fact on a raft, as were assorted rats and owls. There may even have been a reindeer. On the raft. On the raft. And a boy was sitting on the raft. Among the rabbits in waistcoats and the owls and the reindeer. Precisely there, a boy of the cheery gypsy ragamuffin variety. Oh. The picture worried me, I must say. There was an otter swimming in front of the raft. And I used to lie awake at night worrying about this otter having to pull the raft with all these wretched animals on it who shouldn't even be on a raft. And the otter had such a thin tail to pull it with, I thought it must hurt pulling it all the time. Worried me, not badly, but just vaguely, all the time. Then one day, and remember I'd been looking at this picture every night for years, I suddenly noticed that the raft had a sail. Never seen it before. 
The otter was fine. He was just swimming along. She shrugged. Good story, she said. Ends weakly, said Arthur. Leaves the audience crying, yes, but what of it? Fine up till there, but needs a final sting before the credits. Fenchurch laughed and hugged her legs. It was just such a sudden revelation, years of almost unnoticed worry, just dropping away like taking off heavy weights, like black and white becoming colour, like a dry stick suddenly being watered. The sudden shift of perspective that says, put away your worries, the world is a good and perfect place. It is in fact very easy. You probably think I'm saying that because I'm going to say that I felt like that this afternoon or something, don't you? Well, I... said Arthur, his composure suddenly shattered. Well, it's all right, she said. I did. That's exactly what I felt. But you see, I felt that before, even stronger, incredibly strongly. I'm afraid I'm a bit of a one, she said, gazing off into the distance, for sudden, startling revelations. Arthur was at sea, could hardly speak, and felt it wiser, therefore, for the moment not to try. It was very odd, she said, much as one of the pursuing Egyptians might have said that the behaviour of the Red Sea when Moses waved his rod at it was a little on the strange side. Very odd, she repeated, for days before the strangest feeling had been building in me, as if I was going to give birth. N no, it wasn't like that, in fact. It was more as if I was being connected into something, bit by bit. N no, not even that. It was as if the whole of the earth, through me, was going to... Does the number, said Arthur gently, 42, mean anything to you at all? What? No, what are you talking about? exclaimed Fenchurch. Just a thought, murmured Arthur. Arthur, I mean this. This is very real to me. This is serious. I was being perfectly serious, said Arthur. It's just the universe I'm never quite sure about. What do you mean by that? Tell me the rest of it, he said. Don't worry if it sounds odd. Believe me, you are talking to someone who has seen a lot of stuff, he added. That is odd. And I don't mean biscuits. She nodded and seemed to believe him. Suddenly she gripped his arm. It was so simple, she said, so wonderfully and extraordinarily simple when it came. What was it? said Arthur quietly. Arthur, you see, she said, that's what I no longer know. And the loss is unbearable. If I try to think back to it, it all goes flickery and jumpy, and if I try too hard, I get as far as the teacup and I just black out. What? Well, like your story, she said, the best bit happened in a cafe. I was sitting there having a cup of tea. This was after days of this build-up, the feeling of becoming connected up. I think I was buzzing gently, and there was some work going on at a building site opposite the cafe, and I was watching it through the window, over the rim of my teacup, which I always find is the nicest way of watching other people working. And suddenly, there it was in my mind, this message from somewhere. And it was so simple. It made such sense of everything. I just sat up and thought, oh, oh, well, that's all right then. 
I was so startled I almost dropped my teacup. In fact, I think I did drop it, yes. She added thoughtfully, I'm sure I did. How much sense am I making? It was fine up to the bit about the teacup. She shook her head and shook it again as if trying to clear it, which is what she was trying to do. Well, that's it, she said, fine up to the bit about the teacup. That was the point at which it seemed to me quite literally as if the world exploded. What? I know it sounds crazy and everybody says it was hallucinations, but if that was hallucinations, then I have hallucinations in big screen 3D with 16-track Dolby stereo and should probably hire myself out to people who are bored with shark movies. It was as if the ground was literally ripped from under my feet and... She patted the grass lightly, as if for reassurance, and then seemed to change her mind about what she was going to say. And I woke up in hospital. I suppose I've been in and out ever since. And that's why I have an instinctive nervousness, she said, of sudden startling revelations that everything's going to be all right. She looked up at him. Arthur had simply ceased to worry himself about the strange anomalies surrounding his return to his home world, or rather had consigned them to that part of his mind marked things to think about urgent. Here is the world, he had told himself. Here, for whatever reason, is the world, and here it stays, with me on it. But now it seemed to go swimmy around him, as it had that night in the car when Fenchurch's brother had told him the silly stories of the CIA agent in the reservoir. The French embassy went swimmy. The Sheraton Tower Hotel and the Bank of Abu Dhabi went swimmy. The trees went swimmy. The lake went swimmy. But this was perfectly natural and nothing to be alarmed by because a grey goose had just landed on it. The geese were having a great relaxed time and had no major answers they wished to know the questions to. Anyway, said Fenchurch, suddenly and brightly and with a wide-eyed smile, there is something wrong with part of me and you've got to find out what it is. We'll go home. Arthur shook his head. What's the matter? she said. Arthur had shaken his head, not to disagree with her suggestion, which he thought was a truly excellent one, one of the world's great suggestions, but because he was, just for a moment, trying to free himself of the recurring impression he had that just when he was least expecting it, the universe would suddenly leap out from behind a door and go boo at him. I'm just trying to get this entirely clear in my mind, said Arthur. You say you felt as if the earth actually... Exploded. Yes, more than felt. Which is what everybody else says, he said hesitantly, is hallucinations. Yes, but Arthur, that's ridiculous. People think that if you just say hallucinations, it explains anything you want it to explain, and eventually whatever it is you can't understand will just go away. It's just a word. It doesn't explain anything. It doesn't explain why the dolphins disappeared. No said Arthur. No, he added thoughtfully. No, he added again, even more thoughtfully. What? he said at last. Doesn't explain the dolphins disappearing. No, said Arthur. I see that. W which dolphins do you mean? What do you mean, which dolphins? I'm talking about when all the dolphins disappeared. 
She put her hand on his knee, which made him realise that the tingling going up and down his spine was not her gently stroking his back, and must instead be one of the nasty, creepy feelings he so often got when people were trying to explain things to him. Disappeared? Yes. The dolphins? Yes. All the dolphins, said Arthur, disappeared? Yes. The dolphins? You're saying the dolphins all disappeared? Is this, said Arthur, trying to be absolutely clear on this point, what you're saying? Arthur, where have you been, for heaven's sake? The dolphins all disappeared on the same day I... She stared him intently in his startled eyes. What? No dolphins. All gone. Vanished. She searched his face. Did you really not know that? It was clear from his startled expression that he did not. Where did they go? he asked. No one knows. That's what vanished means. She paused. Well, there is one man who says he knows about it, but everyone says he lives in California, she said, and is mad. I was thinking of going to see him because it seems the only lead I've got on what happened to me. She shrugged and then looked at him long and quietly. She laid her hand on the side of his face. I really would like to know where you've been, she said. I think something terrible happened to you then as well, and that's why we recognised each other. She glanced around the park, which was now being gathered into the clutches of dusk. Well, she said, now you've got someone you can tell. Arthur slowly let out a long year of a sigh. It is, he said, a very long story. Fenchurch leaned across him and drew over her canvas bag. Is it anything to do with this, she said. The thing she took out of her bag was battered and travel-worn, as it had been hurled into prehistoric rivers, baked under the sun that shines so redly on the deserts of Cacrafoon, half buried in the marble sands that fringe the heady vapoured oceans of Santraginus V, frozen on the glaciers of the moon of Jaglan Beta, sat on, kicked around spaceships, scuffed and generally abused, and since its makers had thought that these were exactly the sort of things that might happen to it, they had thoughtfully encased it in a sturdy plastic cover and written on it, in large friendly letters, the words, Don't Panic. Where did you get this? said Arthur, startled, taking it from her. Ah, she said. I thought it was yours. In Russell's car that night. You dropped it. Have you been to many of these places? Arthur drew the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy from its cover. It was like a small, thin, flexible lap computer. He tapped some buttons till the screen flared with text. A few, he said. Can we go? What? No, said Arthur abruptly, then relented, but relented warily. Do you want to? he said, hoping for the answer no. It was an act of great generosity on his part not to say, you don't want to, do you, which expects it. Yes, she said. I want to know what the message was that I lost and where it came from, because I don't think, she added, standing up and looking round the increasing gloom of the park, that it came from here. 
I'm not even sure, she further added, slipping her arm around Arthur's waist, that I know where here is. Chapter 21 The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, as has been remarked before often and accurately, a pretty startling kind of a thing. It is, essentially, as the title implies, a guidebook. The problem is, or rather one of the problems, for there are many, a sizeable proportion of which are continually clogging up the civil, commercial and criminal courts in all areas of the galaxy, and especially where possible the more corrupt ones, this. The previous sentence makes sense. That is not the problem. This is. Change. Read it through again and you'll get it. The galaxy is a rapidly changing place. There is, frankly, so much of it, every bit of which is continually on the move, continually changing. A bit of a nightmare, you might think, for a scrupulous and conscientious editor diligently striving to keep this massively detailed and complex electronic tome abreast of all the changing circumstances and conditions that the galaxy throws up every minute of every hour of every day. And you would be wrong. Where you would be wrong would be in failing to realise that the editor, like all the editors the guide has ever had, has no real grasp of the meanings of the words scrupulous, conscientious or diligent, and tends to get his nightmares through a straw. Entries tend to get updated, or not, across the sub-ethernet according to if they read good. Take, for example, the case of Brequinda in the Foth of Avalars, famed in myth, legend and stultifyingly dull Tri-D miniseries as home of the magnificent and magical Fawalanis Fire Dragon. In ancient days, before the advent of the Sorth of Bragadox, when Fragilis sang and Saxaqueen of the Quenilux held sway, when the air was sweet and the nights fragrant, but everyone somehow managed to be, or so they claimed, though how on earth they could have thought that anyone was even remotely likely to believe such a preposterous claim with all that sweet air and fragrant nights and what not is anyone's guess, virgins, it was not possible to heave a brick on Brequinda in the Foth of Avalars without hitting at least half a dozen forlornest fire dragons. Whether you would want to do that is another matter. Not that fire dragons weren't an essentially peace-loving species, because they were. They adored it to bits, and this wholesale adoring of things to bits was often in itself the problem. One so often hurts the one one loves, especially if one is a forlornest fire dragon with breath like a rocket booster and teeth like a park fence. Another problem was that once they were in the mood, they often went on to hurt quite a lot of the ones that other people loved as well. Add to all that the relatively small number of madmen who actually went around the place heaving bricks, and you end up with a lot of people on Brequinda in the Foth of Avalars getting seriously hurt by dragons. But did they mind? They did not. Were they heard to bemoan their fate? No. The forlornest fire dragons were revered throughout the lands of Brequinda in the Foth of Avalars for their savage beauty, their noble ways and their habit of biting people who didn't revere them. Why was this? The answer was simple. Sex. There is, for some unfathomed reason, something almost unbearably sexy about having huge, fire-breathing magical dragons flying low about the sky on moonlit nights, which were already dangerously on the sweet and fragrant side. 
Why this should be so, the romance-besotted people of Braquinda in the Foth of Avalars could not have told you, and would not have stopped to discuss the matter once the effect was up and going, for no sooner would a flock of half a dozen silk-winged, leather-bodied Fualornis fire-dragons heave into sight across the evening horizon, than half the people of Braquinda were scurrying off into the woods with the other half, there to spend a busy, breathless night together, and emerge with the first rays of dawn all smiling and happy, and still claiming, rather endearingly, to be virgins, if rather flushed and sticky virgins. Pheromones, some researchers said. Something sonic, others claimed. The place was always stiff with researchers trying to get to the bottom of it all and taking a very long time about it. Not surprisingly, the guide's graphically enticing description of the general state of affairs on this planet has proved to be astonishingly popular amongst hitchhikers who allow themselves to be guided by it, and so it has simply never been taken out, and it is therefore left to latter-day travellers to find out for themselves that today's modern Braquinda in the city-state of Avalars is now little more than concrete strip joints and dragon burger bars. Chapter 22 the night in Islington was sweet and fragrant. There were, of course, no forlornest fire dragons about in the alley, but if any had chanced by, they might just as well have sloped off across the road for a pizza, for they were not going to be needed. Had an emergency cropped up while they were still in the middle of their pizza with extra anchovy, they could always have sent across a message to put dire straits on the stereo, which is now known to have much the same effect. No said Fenchurch. Not yet. Arthur put dire straits on the stereo. Fenchurch pushed ajar the upstairs front door to let in a little more of the sweet, fragrant night air. They both sat on some of the furniture made out of cushions, very close to the open bottle of champagne. No, said Fenchurch, not till you've found out what's wrong with me. Which bit? But I suppose, she added, very, very, very quietly, that we may as well start with where your hand is now. Arthur said, So which way do I go? Down, said Fenchurch, on this occasion. He moved his hand. Down, she said, is in fact the other way. Oh, yes. Mark Knopfler has an extraordinary ability to make a Schechter custom Stratocaster hoot and sing like angels on a Saturday night, exhausted from being good all week and needing a stiff drink, which is not strictly relevant at this point since the record hadn't yet got to that bit, but there will be too much else going on when it does, and furthermore the chronicler does not intend to sit here with a track list and a stopwatch, so it seems best to mention it now while things are still moving slowly. And so we come, said Arthur, to your knee. There is something terribly and tragically wrong with your left knee. My left knee, said Fenchurch, is absolutely fine. So it is. Did you know that... What? Ah, it's all right. I can tell you do. No, keep going. So it has to be something to do with your feet. She smiled in the dim light and wriggled her shoulders non-committally against the cushions. Since there are cushions in the universe, on Scornchellus Beta to be exact, two worlds in from the swampland of the mattresses, 
that actively enjoy being wriggled against, particularly if it's non-committally because of the syncopated way in which the shoulders move, it's a pity they weren't there. They weren't, but such is life. Arthur held her left foot in his lap and looked it over carefully. All kinds of stuff about the way her dress fell away from her legs was making it difficult for him to think particularly clearly at this point. I have to admit, he said, that I really don't know what I'm looking for. You'll know when you find it, she said. Really you will. There was a slight catch in her voice. It's not that one. Feeling increasingly puzzled, Arthur let her left foot down onto the floor and moved himself around so that he could take her right foot. She moved forward, put her arms round and kissed him, because the record had got to that bit which, if you knew the record, you would know made it impossible not to do this. Then she gave him her right foot. He stroked it, ran his fingers round her ankle, under her toes, along her instep, could find nothing wrong with it. She watched him with great amusement, laughed and shook her head. No, don't stop, she said. But it's not that one now. Arthur stopped and frowned at her left foot on the floor. Don't stop. He stroked her right foot, ran his fingers around her ankle, under her toes, along her instep, and said, You mean it's something to do with which leg I'm holding? She did another of the shrugs which would have brought such joy into the life of a simple cushion from Scorn Shellus Beta. He frowned. Pick me up, she said quietly. He let her right foot down to the floor and stood up. So did she. He picked her up in his arms and they kissed again. This went on for a while. Then she said, Now put me down again. Still puzzled, he did so. Well? She looked at him almost challengingly. So what's wrong with my feet? She said. Arthur still did not understand. He sat on the floor, then got down on his hands and knees to look at her feet, in situ, as it were, in their normal habitat. And as he looked closely, something odd struck him. He put his head right down to the ground and peered. There was a long pause. He sat back heavily. Yes, he said. I see what's wrong with your feet. They don't touch the ground. So? So what do you think? Arthur looked up at her quickly and saw the deep apprehension making her eyes suddenly dark. She bit her lip and was trembling. What? She stammered. Are you... She shook the hair forwards over her eyes that were filling with dark, fearful tears. He stood up quickly, put his arms around her and gave her a single kiss. Perhaps you can do what I can do, he said and walked straight out of her upstairs front door. The record got to the good bit. Chapter 23 The battle raged on about the Star of Zaxis. Hundreds of the fierce and horribly beweaponed Zersla ships had now been smashed and wrenched to atoms by the withering forces the huge silver Zaxisian ship was able to deploy. Part of the moon had gone too, blasted away by those same blazing force guns that ripped the very fabric of space as they passed through it. The Zersla ships that remained, horribly beweaponed though they were, were now hopelessly outclassed by the devastating power of the Zaxisian ship, 
and were fleeing for cover behind the rapidly disintegrating moon when the Zaxissian ship, in hurtling pursuit behind them, suddenly announced that it needed a holiday and left the field of battle. All was redoubled fear and consternation for a moment, but the ship was gone. With the stupendous powers at its command, it flitted across vast tracts of irrationally shaped space quickly, effortlessly, and above all quietly. Deep in his greasy, smelly bunk, fashioned out of a maintenance hatchway, Ford Prefect slept among his towels, dreaming of old haunts. He dreamt at one point in his slumbers of New York. In his dream, he was walking late at night along the east side, beside the river which had become so extravagantly polluted that new life forms were now emerging from it spontaneously, demanding welfare and voting rights. One of these now floated past, waving. Ford waved back. The thing thrashed to the shore and struggled up the bank. Hi, it said. I've just been uh, created. I'm completely new to the universe in all respects. Is there anything you can tell me? Phew, said Ford, a little nonplussed. I can tell you where some bars are, I guess. Hey, what about love and uh, happiness? I sense deep needs for things like that, it said, waving its tentacles. Got any leads there? Oh, you can get some of that, said Ford, on 7th Avenue. I instinctively feel, said the creature, urgently, that I need to be beautiful. Am I? You're pretty direct, aren't you? No point in mucking about, am I? The thing was oozing all over the place now, squelching and blubbering. A nearby wino was getting interested. To me, said Ford, no. But listen, he added after a moment, most people make out, you know. Are there any like you down there? Search me, buster, said the creature. As I said, I'm new here. Life is entirely strange to me. What's it like? Here was something that Ford felt he could speak about with authority. Life, he said, is like a grapefruit. Uh, how so? Well, it's sort of orangey-yellow and dimpled on the outside, wet and squidgy in the middle. It's got pips inside, too. Oh, and some people have half a one for breakfast. Is there anyone else out there I can talk to? I expect so, said Ford. Ask a policeman. Deep in his bunk, Ford Prefect wriggled and turned onto his other side. It wasn't his favourite type of dream because it didn't have eccentric bits, the triple-breasted whore of Erotic and Six in it, whom many of his dreams did feature. But at least it was a dream. At least he was asleep. Chapter 24 Luckily there was a strong updraft in the alley, because Arthur hadn't done this sort of thing for a while, at least not deliberately, and deliberately is exactly the way you are not meant to do it. He swung down sharply, nearly catching himself a nasty crack on the jaw with the doorstep, and tumbled through the air, so suddenly stunned with what a profoundly stupid thing he had just done that he completely forgot the bit about hitting the ground, and didn't. A nice trick, he thought to himself, if you can do it. The ground was hanging menacingly above his head. He tried not to think about the ground, what an extraordinarily big thing it was, and how much it would hurt him if it decided to stop hanging there and suddenly fell on him. He tried to think nice thoughts about lemurs instead, which was exactly the right thing to do because he couldn't at that moment remember precisely what a lemur was, if it was one of those things that sweep in great majestic herds across the plains of wherever it was, 
or if that was wildebeests, so it was a tricky kind of thing to think nice thoughts about without simply resorting to an icky sort of general well-disposedness towards things, and all this kept his mind well-occupied while his body tried to adjust to the fact that it wasn't touching anything. A Mars bar wrapper fluttered down the alleyway. After a seeming moment of doubt and indecision, it eventually allowed the wind to ease it, fluttering between him and the ground. Arthur. The ground was still hanging menacingly above his head, and he thought it was probably time to do something about that, such as fall away from it, which is what he did. Slowly. Very, very slowly. As he fell slowly, very, very slowly, he closed his eyes, carefully, so as not to jolt anything. The feel of his eyes closing ran down his whole body, once it had reached his feet, and the whole of his body was alerted to the fact that his eyes were now closed and was not panicked by it, he slowly, very, very slowly, revolved his body one way and his mind the other. That should sort the ground out. He could feel the air clear about him now, breezing around him quite cheerfully, untroubled by his being there, and slowly, very, very slowly, as from a deep and distant sleep, he opened his eyes. He had flown before, of course, flown many times on cricket until all the bird talk had driven him scatty, but this was different. Here he was on his own world, quietly and without fuss, beyond a slight trembling which could have been attributable to a number of things being in the air. Ten or fifteen feet below him, was the hard tarmac, and a few yards off to the right, the yellow streetlights of Upper Street. Luckily, the alleyway was dark since the light which was supposed to see it through the night was on an ingenious time switch, which meant it came on just before lunchtime and went off again as the evening was beginning to draw in. He was, therefore, safely shrouded in a blanket of dark obscurity. He slowly, very, very slowly, lifted his head to Fenchurch, who was standing in silent, breathless amazement, silhouetted in her upstairs doorway. Her face was inches from his. "'I was about to ask you,' she said in a low, trembly voice, "'what you were doing. "'But then I realised that I could see what you were doing. "'You were flying. "'So it seemed,' she went on after a slight, wondering pause, like a bit of a silly question. And I couldn't immediately think of any others. Arthur said, Can you do it? No. Would you like to try? She bit her lip and shook her head, not so much to say no, but just in sheer bewilderment. She was shaking like a leaf. It's quite easy, urged Arthur, if you don't know how. That's the important bit. Be not at all sure how you're doing it. Just to demonstrate how easy it was, he floated away down the alley, fell upwards quite dramatically, and bobbed back down to her like a banknote on a breath of wind. Ask me how I did that. How did you do that? No idea. Not a clue. She shrugged in bewilderment. So how can I... Arthur bobbed down a little lower and held out his hand. 
I want you to try, he said, to step onto my hand, just one foot. What? Try it. Nervously, hesitantly, almost, she told herself, as if she was trying to step onto the hand of someone who was floating in front of her in midair, she stepped onto his hand. Now the other. What? Take the weight off your back foot. I can't. Try it. Like this. Like that. Nervously, hesitantly, almost, she told herself, as if she stopped telling herself what what she was doing was like because she had a feeling she didn't altogether want to know. She fixed her eyes very, very firmly on the guttering of the roof of the decrepit warehouse opposite, which had been annoying her for weeks because it was clearly going to fall off, and she wondered if anyone was going to do anything about it or whether she ought to say something to somebody, and didn't think for a moment about the fact that she was standing on the hands of someone who wasn't standing on anything at all. Now, said Arthur, take your weight off your left foot. She thought that the warehouse belonged to the carpet company, who had their offices round the corner, and took her weight off her left foot, so she should probably go and see them about the gutter. Now, said Arthur, take the weight off your right foot. I can't. Try. She hadn't seen the guttering from quite this angle before, and it looked to her now as if, as well as the mud and gunge up there, there might also be a bird's nest. If she leaned forward just a little and took her weight off her right foot, she could probably see it more clearly. Arthur was alarmed to see that someone down in the alley was trying to steal her bicycle. He particularly didn't want to get involved in an argument at the moment and hoped that the guy would do it quietly and not look up. He had the quiet, shifty look of someone who habitually stole bicycles in alleys and habitually didn't expect to find their owners hovering several feet above them. He was relaxed by both these habits and went about his job with purpose and concentration, and when he found that the bike was unarguably bound by hoops of tungsten carbide to an iron bar embedded in concrete, he peacefully bent both its wheels and went on his way. Arthur let out a long-held breath. See what a piece of eggshell I have found you, said Fenchurch in his ear. Chapter 25 Those who are regular followers of the doings of Arthur Dent may have received an impression of his character and habits which, while it includes the truth and, of course, nothing but the truth, falls somewhat short in its composition of the whole truth in all its glorious aspects. And the reasons for this are obvious. Editing, selection, the need to balance that which is interesting with that which is relevant and cut out all the tedious happenstance. Like this, for instance. Arthur Dent went to bed, he went up the stairs, all fifteen of them, opened the door, went into his room, took off his shoes and socks, and then all the rest of his clothes, one by one, and left them in a neatly crumpled heap on the floor. He put on his pyjamas, the blue ones with the stripe. He washed his face and hands, cleaned his teeth, went to the lavatory, realised that he had once again got all this in the wrong order, had to wash his hands again and went to bed. He read for 15 minutes, spending the first 10 minutes of that trying to work out where in the book he had got to the previous night. Then he turned out the light and within a minute or so more was asleep. It was dark. He lay on his left side for a good hour. 
After that, he moved restlessly in his sleep for a moment and then turned over to sleep on his right side. Another hour after this, his eyes flickered briefly and he slightly scratched his nose, though there was still a good twenty minutes to go before he turned back onto his left side. And so he whiled the night away, sleeping. At four, he got up and went to the lavatory again. He opened the door to the lavatory and so on. It's guff. It doesn't advance the action. It makes for nice fat books such as the American market thrives on, but it doesn't actually get you anywhere. You don't, in short, want to know. But there are other omissions as well, beside the teeth cleaning and trying to find fresh socks variety, and in some of these, people have often seemed inordinately interested. What they want to know about all that stuff off in the wings with Arthur and Trillian? Did that ever get anywhere? To which the answer is, of course, mind your own business. And what, they say, was he up to all those nights on the planet Cricket? Just because the planet didn't have Fuolornis fire dragons or dire straits doesn't mean that everyone just sat up every night reading. Or, to take a more specific example, what about the night after the committee meeting party on prehistoric Earth, when Arthur found himself sitting on a hillside, watching the moon rise over the softly burning trees, in company with a beautiful young girl called Mella, recently escaped from a lifetime of staring every morning at a hundred nearly identical photographs of moodily lit tubes of toothpaste in the art department of an advertising agency on the planet Golga Frinsham. What then? What happened next? And the answer is, of course, that the book ended. The next one didn't resume the story till five years later, and you can, claim some, take discretion too far. This Arthur Dent comes the cry from the furthest reaches of the galaxy, and has even now been found inscribed on a mysterious deep space probe, thought to originate from an alien galaxy at a distance too hideous to contemplate. What is he, man or mouse? Is he interested in nothing more than tea and the wider issues of life? Has he no spirit? Has he no passion? Does he not, to put it in a nutshell, fuck? Those who wish to know should read on. Others may wish to skip on to the last chapter, which is a good bit and has Marvin in it. Chapter 26 Arthur Dent allowed himself for an unworthy moment to think as they drifted up, that he very much hoped that his friends who had always found him pleasant but dull, or more latterly, odd but dull, were having a good time in the pub, but that was the last time for a while that he thought of them. They drifted up, spiralling slowly around each other, like sycamore seeds falling from sycamore trees in the autumn, except going the other way. And as they drifted up, their minds sang with the ecstatic knowledge that either what they were doing was completely and utterly and totally impossible, or that physics had a lot of catching up to do. Physics shook its head and, looking the other way, concentrated on keeping the cars going along the Euston Road and out towards the Westway flyover, on keeping the streetlights lit, and on making sure that when somebody on Baker Street dropped a cheeseburger, it went splat upon the ground. Dwindling headily beneath them, the beaded strings of lights of London. London, Arthur had to keep reminding himself, not the strangely coloured fields of cricket on the remote fringes of the galaxy, lighted freckles of which faintly spanned the opening sky above them, but London, swayed, swaying and turning, turned. Try a swoop, he called to Fenchurch. What? 
Her voice seemed strangely clear but distant in all the vast, empty air. It was breathy and faint with disbelief. All those things, clear, faint, distant, breathy, all at the same time. We're flying, she said. A trifle, called Arthur. Think nothing of it. Try a swoop. A swoop. Her hand caught his, and in a second her weight caught it too, and stunningly she was gone, tumbling beneath him, clawing wildly at nothing. Physics glanced at Arthur, and clotted with horror, he was gone too, sick with giddy, dropping, every part of him screaming but his voice. They plummeted because this was London, and you really couldn't do this sort of thing here. He couldn't catch her because this was London, and not a million miles from here, 756 to be exact, in Pisa, Galileo had clearly demonstrated that two falling bodies fall at exactly the same rate of acceleration irrespective of their relative weights. They fell. Arthur realised as he fell, giddily and sickeningly, that if he was going to hang around in the sky, believing everything that the Italians had to say about physics when they couldn't even keep a simple tower straight, that they were in dead trouble. And damn well did fall faster than Fenchurch. He grappled her from above and fumbled for a tight grip on her shoulders. He got it. Fine. They were now falling together, which was all very sweet and romantic, but didn't solve the basic problem, which was that they were falling, and the ground wasn't waiting around to see if he had any more clever tricks up his sleeve, but was coming up to meet them like an express train. He couldn't support her weight. He hadn't anything he could support it with or against. The only thing he could think was that they were obviously going to die, and if he wanted anything other than the obvious to happen, he was going to have to do something other than the obvious. Here he felt he was on familiar territory. He let go of her, pushed her away, and when she turned her face to him in a gasp of stunned horror, caught her little finger with his little finger and swung her back upwards, tumbling clumsily up after her. Shit, she said, as she sat panting and breathless on absolutely nothing at all, and when she had recovered herself, they fled on up into the night. Just below cloud level they paused and scanned where they had impossibly come. The ground was something not to regard with any too firm or steady an eye, but merely to glance at, as it were, in passing. Fenchurch tried some little swoops, daringly, and found that if she judged herself just right against a body of wind, she could pull off some really quite dazzling ones with a little pirouette at the end, followed by a little drop which made her dress billow around her. And this is where readers who are keen to know what Marvin and Ford Prefect have been up to all this while should look ahead to later chapters, because Arthur now could wait no longer and helped her take it off. It drifted down and away, whipped by the wind until it was a speck which finally vanished and for various complicated reasons revolutionised the life of a family in Hounslow over whose washing line it was discovered draped in the morning. In a mute embrace they drifted up till they were swimming amongst the misty wraiths of moisture that you can see feathering around the wings of an aeroplane but never feel because you are sitting warm inside the stuffy aeroplane and looking through the little scratchy perspex window while somebody else's son tries patiently to pour warm milk into your shirt. Arthur and Fenchurch could feel them, wispy cold and thin, wreathing around their bodies, very cold 
very thin. They felt even Fenchurch, now protected from the elements by only a couple of fragments from Marks and Spencer, that if they were not going to let the force of gravity bother them, then mere cold or paucity of atmosphere could go and whistle. The two fragments from Marks and Spencer, which, as Fenchurch rose now into the misty body of the clouds, Arthur removed very, very slowly, which is the only way it's possible to do it when you're flying, and also not using your hands, went on to create considerable havoc in the morning in, respectively, counting from top to bottom, Isleworth and Richmond. They were in the cloud for a long time, because it was stacked very high, and when finally they emerged wetly above it, Fenchurch slowly spinning like a starfish lapped by a rising tide pool, they found that above the clouds is where the night gets seriously moonlit. The light is darkly brilliant. There are different mountains up there, but they are mountains, with their own white arctic snows. They had emerged at the top of the high-stacked cumulonimbus, and now began lazily to drift down its contours. As Fenchurch eased Arthur in turn from his clothes, prized him free of them till all were gone, winding their surprised way down into the enveloping whiteness. She kissed him, kissed his neck, his chest, and soon they were drifting on, turning slowly, in a kind of speechless T-shape, which might have caused even a Fualornis fire dragon, had one flown past, replete with pizza, to flap its wings and cough a little. There were, however, no Fualornis fire dragons in the clouds, nor could there be, for, like the dinosaurs, the dodos, and the greater drubbered wintwok of Steg Bartle Major in the constellation Fraz, and unlike the Boeing 747, which is in plentiful supply, they are sadly extinct, and the universe shall never know their like again. The reason that a Boeing 747 crops up rather unexpectedly in the above list is not unconnected with the fact that something very similar happened in the lives of Arthur and Fenchurch a moment or two later. They are big things, terrifyingly big. You know when one is in the air with you. There is a thunderous attack of air, a moving wall of screaming wind, and you get tossed aside, if you are foolish enough to be doing anything remotely like what Arthur and Fenchurch were doing in its close vicinity, like butterflies in the Blitz. This time, however, there was no heart-sickening fall or loss of nerve, just a regrouping moments later, and a wonderful new idea enthusiastically signalled through the buffeting noise. Mrs. E. Capelson of Boston, Massachusetts, was an elderly lady. Indeed, she felt her life was nearly at an end. She had seen a lot of it, been puzzled by some, but she was a little uneasy to feel at this late stage bored by too much. It had all been very pleasant, but perhaps a little too explicable, a little too routine. With a sigh, she flipped up the little plastic window shutter and looked out over the wing. At first, she thought she ought to call the stewardess, but then she thought, no, damn it, definitely not. This was for her, and her alone. By the time her two inexplicable people finally slipped back off the wing and tumbled into the slipstream, she had cheered up an awful lot. She was mostly immensely relieved to think that virtually everything that anybody had ever told her was wrong. The following morning, Arthur and Fenchurch slept very late in the alley despite the continual wail of furniture being restored. The following night, they did it all over again, 
only this time with Sony Walkman. Chapter 27 This is all very wonderful, said Fenchurch a few days later, but I do need to know what has happened to me. You see, there's this difference between us, that you lost something and found it again, and I found something and lost it. I need to find it again. She had to go out for the day, so Arthur settled down for a day of telephoning. Murray Bost Henson was a journalist on one of the papers with small pages and big print. It would be pleasant to be able to say that he was none the worse for this, but sadly, this was not the case. He happened to be the only journalist that Arthur knew, so Arthur phoned him anyway. Arthur, my old soup spoon, my old silver tureen, how particularly stunning to hear from you. Someone told me you'd gone off into space or something. Murray had his own special kind of conversation language which he had invented for his own use, and which no one else was able to speak or even follow. Hardly any of it meant anything at all. The bits which did mean anything were often so wonderfully buried that no one could ever spot them slipping past in the avalanche of nonsense. The time when you did find out later which bits he did mean was often a bad time for all concerned. What? said Arthur. Just a rumour, my old elephant tusk, my little green baize card table, just a rumour. Probably means nothing at all, but I may need a quote from you. Nothing to say, just pub talk. We thrive on it, my old prosthetic limb, we thrive on it. Plus, it would fit like a what's-it in one of those other things with the other stories of the week. So, it could be good just to have you denying it. Excuse me, something has just fallen out of my ear. There was a slight pause, at the end of which Murray Bost Henson came back on the line sounding genuinely shaken. Just remembered, he said, what an odd evening I had last night. Anyway, my old, I won't say what, how do you feel about having written on Halley's Comet? I haven't, said Arthur with a suppressed sigh, ridden on Halley's Comet. OK, how do you feel about not having ridden on Halley's Comet? Pretty relaxed, Murray. There was a pause while Murray wrote this down. Good enough for me, Arthur. Good enough for Ethel and me and the chickens. Fits in with the general weirdness of the week. Week of the weirdos, we're thinking of calling it. Good, eh? Very good. Got a ring to it. First we have this man it always rains on. What? It's the absolute stocking top truth. All documented in his little black book. It all checks out at every single fun-loving level. The Met Office is going ice-cold, thick banana whips. And funny little men in white coats are flying in from all over the world with their little rulers and boxes and drip feeds. This man is the bee's knees, Arthur. He is the wasp's nipples. He is, I would go so far as to say, the entire set of erogenous zones of every major flying insect of the Western world. We're calling him the Rain God. Nice, eh? I think I've met him. Good ring to it. What did you say? I may have met him. Complains all the time, yes? Incredible! You met the Rain God? If it's the same guy, I told him to stop complaining and show someone his book. There was an impressed pause from Murray Bost Henson's end of the phone. Well, you did a bundle. An absolute bundle has absolutely been done by you. Listen, do you know how much a tour operator is paying that guy not to go to Malaga this year? I mean, forget irrigating the Sahara and boring stuff like that. This guy has a whole new career ahead of him, just avoiding places for money. The man's turning into a monster, Arthur. We might even have to make him win the bingo. 
Listen, we may want to do a feature on you, Arthur, the man who made the rain god rain. Got a ring to it, eh? A nice one, but we may need to photograph you under a garden shower, but that'll be okay. Where are you? Uh, I'm in Islington. Listen, Murray. Islington? Yes. Well, what about the real weirdness of the week, the real seriously loopy stuff? You know anything about these flying people? No. You must have. This is the real seethingly crazy one. This is the real meatballs in the batter. Locals are phoning in all the time to say there's this couple who go flying nights. We've got guys down in our photo labs working through the night to put together a genuine photograph. You must have heard. No. Arthur, where have you been? Oh, space. Right, I got your quote. But that was months ago. Listen, it's night after night this week, my old cheese grater. Right on your patch, this couple just fly around the sky and start doing all kinds of stuff. And I don't mean looking through walls or pretending to be box girder bridges. You don't know anything? No. Arthur, it's been almost inexpressibly delicious conversing with you, chum bum, but I have to go. I'll send the guy with the camera and the hose. Uh, give me the address. I'm ready and writing. Listen, Murray, I called to ask you something. I have a lot to do. I just wanted to find out something about the dolphins. No story. Last year's news. Forget them. They're gone. It's important. Listen, no one will touch it. You can't sustain a story, you know, when the only news is the continuing absence of whatever it is the story's about. Not our territory, anyway. Try the Sundays. Maybe they'll run a little whatever happened to whatever happened to the dolphins story in a couple of years around August. But what's anybody going to do now? Dolphins still gone? Continuing dolphin absence? Dolphins further days without them? The story dies, Arthur. It lies down and kicks his little feet in the air and presently goes with a great golden spike in the sky, my old fruit bat. Murray, I'm not interested in whether it's a story. I just want to find out how I can get in touch with that guy in California who claims to know something about it. I thought you might know. Chapter 28 People are beginning to talk, said Fenchurch that evening, after they had hauled her cello in. Not only talk, said Arthur, but print, in big bold letters under the bingo prizes, which is why I thought I'd better get these. He showed her the long, narrow booklets of airline tickets. Arthur, she said, hugging him, does that mean you managed to talk to him? I have had a day, said Arthur, of extreme telephonic exhaustion. I have spoken to virtually every department of virtually every paper in Fleet Street, and I finally tracked his number down. You've obviously been working hard. You're drenched with sweat, poor darling. Not with sweat, said Arthur wearily. A photographer's just been. I tried to argue, but never mind. The point is, yes. You spoke to him. I spoke to his wife. She said he was too weird to come to the phone right now and could I call back. He sat down heavily, realised he was missing something and went to the fridge to find it. Want a drink? Would commit murder to get one. I always know I'm in for a tough time when my cello teacher looks me up and down and says, Ah, yes, my dear, I think a little Tchaikovsky today. I called again, said Arthur, and she said that he was 3.2 light years from the phone and I should call back. Ah, I called again. She said the situation had improved. He was now a mere 2.6 light years from the phone, but it was still a long way to shout. You don't suppose, said Fenchurch doubtfully, that there's anyone else we can talk to? 
It gets worse, said Arthur. I spoke to someone on a science magazine who actually knows him, and he said that John Watson will not only believe, but will actually have absolute proof, often dictated to him by angels with golden beards and green wings and Dr. Scholl footwear, that the month's most fashionable silly theory is true. For people who question the validity of these visions, he will triumphantly produce the clogs in question, and that's as far as you get. I didn't realise it was that bad, said Fenchurch quietly. She fiddled listlessly with the tickets. I phoned Mrs Watson again, said Arthur. Her name, by the way, and you may wish to know this, is Arcane Jill. I see. I'm glad you see. I thought you mightn't believe any of this, so when I called her this time, I used the telephone answering machine to record the call. He went across to the telephone machine and fiddled and fumed with all its buttons for a while, because it was the one which was particularly recommended by Witch magazine and is almost impossible to use without going mad. Here it is, he said at last, wiping the sweat from his brow. The voice was thin and crackly with its journey to a geostationary satellite and back, but was also hauntingly calm. Perhaps I should explain, Arcane Jill Watson's voice said, that the phone is in fact in a room that he never comes into. It's in the asylum, you see. Wonko the Sane does not like to enter the asylum, and so he does not. I feel you should know this because it may save you phoning. If you would like to meet him, this is very easily arranged. All you have to do is walk in. He will only meet people outside the asylum. Arthur's voice, at its most mystified, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Where is the asylum? Where is the asylum? Arcane Jill Watson again. Have you ever read the instructions on a packet of toothpicks? On the tape, Arthur's voice had to admit that he had not. You may want to do that. You may find that it clarifies things for you a little. You may find that it indicates to you where the asylum is. Thank you. The sound of the phone line went dead. Arthur turned the machine off. Well, I suppose we can regard that as an invitation, he said with a shrug. I actually managed to get the address from the guy on the science magazine. Fenchurch looked up at him again with a thoughtful frown and looked at the tickets again. Do you think it's worth it? she said. Well, said Arthur, the one thing that everyone I spoke to agreed on, apart from the fact that they all thought he was barking mad, is that he does know more than any man living about dolphins. Chapter 29 This is an important announcement. This is Flight 121 to Los Angeles. If your travel plans today do not include Los Angeles, now would be the perfect time to disembark.